Welcome to the next in our online conversation series from St Paul's Cathedral. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at the Cathedral, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that takes place. This conversation is slightly different than usual. This time I'm in conversation with the Right Reverend Dr Helen Ann Hartley, who is the Bishop of Ripon. But what makes it slightly different is that Helen Ann is asking me the questions rather than the other way around. Helen Ann is an old friend of mine and, like me, a Pauline scholar. So she's going to be asking me questions about my new book, Lydia, a story, which is coming out in October. In Lydia, like my earlier book, Phoebe, a story, I'm exploring what it might have been like to be one of the earliest Christians. In Phoebe, I set the story in Rome, thinking about what it might have been like to have been a Christian who first heard the epistle to the Romans. In Lydia, I focus the story in Philippi and around the famous seller of purple that we meet in Acts 16, Lydia. So in our conversation, we explore both the theme of the book, but also various strands of thought. So what it was like to live in the earliest church, um, the themes of honour and shame, what it might have been like to have heard Philippians for the first time and to realise what impact it had on people's lives. But we also talk about imagination and storytelling and how you begin to tell stories about an ancient context like Philippi. This was a wide-ranging conversation and we hugely enjoyed ourselves as we explored all sorts of different themes in this conversation. Paula, this is your second story about a woman in the New Testament and the first of course was about the wonderful Phoebe and now you've written another one which is about to come out this autumn about Lydia. Um, were you surprised about how warmly people responded to the first book and, and in why for many people their reaction was, was quite a strong one? Yeah I was um, and obviously delighted. Um, I was trying to do something different and you're always a little bit nervous when you do something different about how well it's going to go down. And uh, what I was trying to do in Phoebe um, was something very similar to um, the book that I read when I was an undergraduate, and you probably read the same book um, yourself, which was The Shadow of the Galilean by Get Tyson, who's a great um, New Testament scholar. And what Get Tyson did in The Shadow of the Galilean is he introduced scholarship in a narrative form. He told a story about somebody who never quite met Jesus. Um, and it was such a clever book that I um, was absolutely captivated by it. And when I was um, in my teens and I read it for the first time, I thought to myself, someone should do that about Paul. And, and then nobody did for many, many years, um, which is why I thought I would um, write Phoebe. But because it was a different way of writing Pauline scholarship, I was quite nervous about how it would go down. So, yeah, I was absolutely delighted that it, it was well received by a whole load of people. Um, not everybody, obviously, but for most people, um, they really enjoyed it. And um, it was lovely to be able to hear people's responses and how it opened up for them the world of the New Testament, which is what I was really trying to do. So I remember reading Gert Tyson's book and, and that was, gosh, it's kind of dates us now, doesn't it, a little bit? It does, yes. <laughs> I mean, why do you think that, that was such a, a unique and sort of groundbreaking type of book and then kind of nothing, as it were, uh, until you come along with, with, uh, with, with Phoebe? Do you, why do you think there was such a gap in terms of the style of, of, of that kind of writing? 
Well, I think it's because it's not how you're trained as a New Testament scholar, as you will know yourself, you're trained into a different kind of writing, um, a kind of writing that um, focuses much more closely on reporting on scholarship, on conceptual ideas. Um, and so therefore, um, it's not how New Testament scholars are trained to write. So I think that's one of the, the reasons. The other reason I think is is actually quite hard to do. I discovered as I was halfway through Phoebe, and then again I was reminded when I was halfway through Lydia, trying to do this kind of writing is a tricky way of writing, because you're trying to be both really creative and really faithful to the text and the scholarship, and that makes it quite a hard task. So I think there's an element of that. I should also note, however, that um, there was a massive gap between Gert Tyson and me writing Phoebe, but just after I Phoebe came out, Ben Witherington also did a similar thing on Priscilla. So there, it's, it feels as though we've had a little clutch of books much more recently um, that are much more um, narrative. There are others um, in between as well, but um, those are the ones that kind of really stand out. So why did you choose Lydia to be the focus of this book? Well, because Lydia is quite like Phoebe. The reason why I chose to write about Phoebe was because in Romans 16, you're given a few strands of information, which is just enough to get the creative juices flowing. And Lydia is very similar. So Lydia appears in Acts 16. Um, Paul is called over to Greece by the, a vision of a man from Macedonia. And the first place that he goes to um, when he gets to Greece is Philippi. And he meets Lydia um, in a place of prayer down by a stream and she is converted. Then we have the story of Paul in prison and then move and with an earthquake and then Paul moves on. And there's just a few strands of information. Um, we know that um, she's a trader, that she trades in purple, that she lives in Philippi, that she prayed in a place of meet and place of prayer, which is found by a stream, which isn't as much as a synagogue, but is a place of prayer. Um, and there's enough of those little strands that make your creative juices flow. But then the really interesting question, um, which arises from scholarship, is where does Lydia go to? Because by the time Paul writes Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, the, con the congregation who were in Philippi, Lydia isn't mentioned at all. So there are, is enough information for us to be able to build some kind of construction, but not so much um, as your creative juices can't um, get flowing. And so... That's one of the reasons is that there's enough information. The other thing that I've been trying to do with Phoebe, um, with Lydia, and then with also my recent book, um, Women of Holy Week, is what I'm trying to do is to expand our knowledge of the women of the New Testament. Um, one of the things that I've been really struck by is that when I imagine the events of the New Testament, there are hardly any women in them. And what I'm noting in the text is actually there are a number of women who we just gloss over. So what I'm trying to do in Lydia, in Phoebe and in Women of Holy Week is to reintroduce women into our imagining of the New Testament. Do you think in, in, in writing in this particular imaginative way, I guess, it's, it's a different kind of exercise, isn't it, to sort of writing, as it were, a more traditional scholarly book with, with lots of footnotes. <laughs> um, can you Say a little bit about your motivation in terms of this type of imaginative genre, as opposed to, you know, you could have just said, right, I'm going to write a scholarly book with lots of notes mm -hmm. about, you know, see, see where we go with it. What, what is distinctive about 
the way in which you write that enables you to open up the scholarship in a way that you couldn't uh, in, in, in another type of, of book? Well, because stories allow us to engage with ideas in a different kind of way. And what the more the more I do it, the more passionate I get about the way in which stories introduce a different register of truth. So within traditional ways of writing scholarship, what you do is you are entirely intellectual in your engagement with truth um, and how that um, unfolds. And in storytelling, you have to introduce an emotional element into it. And for me, there is something about the way in which you imagine emotion that helps you to engage much more deeply with the theology that's going on. The thing that I was really struck about when I was writing Lydia and reflecting on Philippians is there are a lot of profoundly emotional themes in the letter, which you can't really unpack in the traditional commentary scholarly way because we use solely our intellectual faculties to think about them. Whereas if you tell a story, you can imagine what it felt like to be a certain person. You can imagine um, how an experience in the past might make you react in one way or another. If I give an example, um, one of the really striking features of Philippians 2, and it's known as the Christ hymn because it describes Jesus who came down to earth and took the form of a slave. And as I was writing the story, I imagined what it might have felt like for a slave to hear that, because it's one thing for people who have power to say what a great thing it is to give up that power and become like a slave. But it's quite another thing if you are already a slave. Um, and so therefore, I kind of began to feel and to notice those emotional resonances that you simply wouldn't get in writing in a different kind of way. And for me, and I think um, I'm not the only person, um, it is opening up that emo emotional register uh, when we think about what theology means to us that makes all the difference in the reading of the New Testament. I think it was... Um... Lisa Cron, who's a North American writer and, and novelist, and she talks about how story is crucial to our evolution, um, even more so than opposable thumbs, um, because opposable <laughs> thumbs let us hang on, but story, um, sort of story tells us what to hang on to, so that there's something in the storytelling. And I, I just want to tease out a little bit the, the theme of imagination, because what strikes me in the way that you, you've crafted Phoebe and, and Lydia and, and the women of the New Testament is the whole kind of sensory world is opened to us. It's a world of colour. That's the obvious one with Lydia because she deals with purple and there's a lot about purple in this, in this book. Um, but the sort of sights, the sounds, the smells, you kind of immerse yourself much more in the, in the world of the first century than, than perhaps the biblical text um, demands or allows. Do, do, do you find that sort of sensory experience, was, was that part of how you try to map out the, the story? Oh, absolutely. Um, and there was, I, I mean, I really like you were kind of picking up that kind of sensory. Um, I feel as though I've lived in Philippi for a long time while I was writing Lydia. Um, I, I, I know what everyone looks like. Um, I imagine um, what it was like to walk through the streets. Um, the smells are really important. And um, 
I think for me, as I wrote the story, I felt profoundly immersed in the world of um, the Philippians and what it felt like to be that those kinds of people. I and mean, of course, on one level, we can't possibly know what it was like to be them. Um, but on another level, um, engaging in this sensory um, way of telling story um, allows us to understand a lot more about what was going on. And I think the thing that really struck me both when writing Phoebe and when writing Lydia is that um, we, we end up with a very monochrome, kind of a very flat imagining of what it was like to be in the first century. So if you talk to people today about um, their reaction to Paul, um, then you will get a whole range of different reactions. There's people who absolutely adore everything that Paul writes. There's people who utterly loathe everything that Paul has written and declares they're never going to do it again. There's people who are slightly ambivalent about Paul. So people react emotionally to Paul. Um, but we imagine that the people of the first century all reacted in a single, similar way. So Paul wrote a letter. They all went, thank you very much. We'll do what you suggest. And on they um, carried on. Um, and what I realised as I was writing both Phoebe and Lydia um, was actually that in the first century, just as much as in the 21st century, people come with experiences, um, with things in their past that will mean that they react in different ways. Some people will have reacted very positively towards Paul. P other people will have reacted very negatively towards him. So it, Shock news. The people of the first century reacted in a different way in the way that the people of the 21st century, you know, we're, we're all people, we, have, we react in different ways. But it was entering the sensory world of Philippi that helped me to begin to see some of the ways in which reactions happen, in which we tell stories, um, the way in which we tell stories about ourselves, um, which I think is also really interesting. You keep saying that. Um these aren't novels, <laughs> but both Phoebe and Lydia, I think, read very much like a, like a novel and, and, and they're quite gripping. You kind of want to turn the page and what happens next. Are, are they really not, not novels? Um, I still think they're not. Um, and the reason why I think they're not is because a novel exists in an in and of itself, um, it has a story which unfolds and, and can potentially go in any direction at all. Whereas actually what I'm trying to do is to tell you a story that's faithful to the biblical text, but also faithful to scholarship. So it feels as though it's a story that is constrained. There are various things I can't do because I am being faithful to the text and to, um, the, to the scholarship. And one of the things that um, I'm very clear about is that in telling the story of Lydia, Actually, what I'm trying to do is to give you an exegesis of Philippians. And um, what was interesting this time around is the letter to the Romans is too big to do a proper exegesis of. So I had to cherry pick bits. Whereas with Lydia, actually, Philippians is only four chapters long and therefore you can go through it um, in detail. So I would say um, even more than Phoebe, this is a narrative exegesis of a New Testament book um, with background and sociology and um, imagination thrown in, thrown in. So 
I think I still want to say it's not a novel. Um, it reads um, in a novelistic way, but I don't think it's a novel. And also, I'm, I'm not a novelist. Um, I have friends who are novelists, and I think they're utterly brilliant. Um, but I'm a New Testament scholar, and I just want to be absolutely clear that I know that I'm not a novelist. Okay, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you have that. <laughs> There's the sense, isn't it, which the Gospels themselves were kind of groundbreaking in terms of genre, but they, particularly Mark's Gospel, and a lot of scholarship recently has talked about how Mark is, you know, there's more of a sense of eyewitness testimony in that. And it, and it seems to me it's something of what you're doing in this imagination exercise is almost mirroring that sense of putting some eyewitness testimony back into the dynamic of the story. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm also imagining, so I've, I've been hugely influenced by Ignatian readings of scripture, where you imagine yourself into the story. And um, normally you do that on gospel stories, uh, because um, they're already there as a story. And um, what happens with Ignatian readings is that you are invited to imagine yourself to be one of the characters, either one of the main characters or actually one of the unnamed characters. And through doing that, to inhabit scripture, to see um, how it makes you react, to see how you engage more fully with what's going on. And I've always wondered what it might look like if you did it with a Pauline letter. So in a sense, with both Phoebe and Lydia, what I'm doing is an extended Ignatian um, reflection on what it was like to be a member of the Pauline community, um, how it felt um, to live in the first century um, and to take up residence um, in, in the story. And both Phoebe and Lydia lend themselves really well to that because they're shadowy characters on the edge of the story. And that therefore allows us to imagine um, who they were, what they might have thought, who are the other people that they knew. Um, and so I think there is something about a spiritual exercise that I'm trying to fumble towards in this as well, while also um, having footnotes. Do you have an ideal reader in mind? Uh, and if you do, what do you hope that they'll get from the books? Well, I do have an ideal reader. Um, and it's somebody who would never pick up a Pauline scholarship book. Um, I've often, I often think when um, people talk to me about their reaction to Phoebe, um, and normally people who are Pauline scholars um, have been just a little bit hesitant about it because they would say, well, I'd rather read a commentary, to which I would want to respond, well, if you would read a commentary, then please, go ahead, read a commentary. Um, that's probably the best way of engaging with the text. But what I'm hoping to do is to open up Pauline scholarship, to um, open up the text for people who would never normally engage with scholarship. They would never pick a big fat book of Pauline scholarship off the shelf. They'd never read a commentary. And actually what I was really um, touched by in reactions to Phoebe are the number of people who said, I read Phoebe and then I read Romans and I've never read Romans all the way through because it's felt too hard. And in a way, I wanted to say I wrote it for you. Um, and the same, I think, is true of Lydia. What I really hope is that people will read Lydia. They'll then read Acts and then they'll read Philippians and then they will start imagining for themselves what it was like. So my ideal reader is somebody who would never normally imagine doing this um, and then might be tempted into the world of thinking about the New Testament um, because they wouldn't normally have done it. 
just thinking a little bit about some of the themes then that kind of un- unfold in, in, in Lydia. There's, there's quite a, a strong theme throughout the book about um, honour and shame, you know, what's honourable and what's shameful, um, particularly in the first century context, and how in many ways Christianity disrupts all of that. There's a sense of revolution, of course, and that, that continues today. Could you say a little bit more about that dynamic of, of honour and shame as, as, as you encountered it in, in writing the book and, and the, the impact perhaps on, on our expression of faith today? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, the thing that I've become gripped by recently, and this is both in reading the Gospels and when I wrote a book recently on the parables, um, it became a very, very clear theme all the way through the parables, but also in reading Paul, is that the culture of the first century was based on um, what, what is often known as an honour-shame dynamic. So the idea is that in the first century, both um, in Jewish tradition and also in Roman tradition, one of the key things, the themes that run all the way through life is honour. And the importance of honour is that um, honour is um, recognised as being something that is given to you by society. So honour is something that is entirely external in the first century world. And you are given honour by those around you and you have honour taken away and hence you are shamed by those who are around you. And one of the really key things that feature in um, a first century society is the way in which your peers respond to you, how they react to you, what they say to you um, and whether they attribute to you honour or shame. And one of the things you can see all the way through the parables, you can read it through Acts, you can read it in the Gospels, you can read it in Paul, is that one of the key motivators for life in the first century was ensuring that other people show honour to you. When you know that, and then you start reading the New Testament texts, you realise that Jesus's message, the theology of Paul, what's going on in Philippians, turns that whole principle upside down. So rather than living your life expecting other people to honour you, you give it up. You genuinely and um, generously um, give up your hope of honour and instead seek the lowest place. Um, As Philippians 2 says, you take on the form of a slave. And it is one of those things that the first century world would have been absolutely bemused by. They would have said, what on earth are you doing that for? The whole point of living is to make sure that you get as much honour as you possibly can. And the kind of the point about honour is that it's a zero-sum game. If I have it, you don't have it. Um, it's, it's about making sure that you're the top of the pile the whole time. Philippians um, has this very strong theology of actually giving all of that up and voluntarily going to the bottom of the pile. It would have caused them the utter bemusement And what's quite interesting is you stop and think about it is we go, well, we don't live in that society anymore. We don't have an honour-shame society anymore. And then when you think about it a little bit more, you realise that we really do. We just express it in a different way. If you look at the way in which politics works, at the media works, social media, actually, we are all about honour and shame. We just express it in a slightly different way. And I, for me, it's really landed strongly, having written Phoebe and Lydia and also um, had a look at the parables of how that honour-shame dynamic still really functions. Um, and, and also 
I must admit, um, my current job at St Paul's um, is one in which it brings it to the fore every day for me. Um, I work in an institution um, which um, places a lot of emphasis on status. And one of the things that I find really challenging living my life um, as a canon of St Paul's is actually how do you live faithfully that message that says you give it all up? You give up that status. You don't claim it. Um, what does it mean to be a person who lives that faithfully? So it's it's landed in me um, historically because I've recognised the importance of the first century. It's landed in me genuine, generally um, in the 21st century because I've recognised its importance in the world. And then every single day I have to ask myself, am I actually living this out? So it's become one of those themes that feels like it's pursuing me through my life. I think it's a theme that many, many of us listening to this can, can resonate with. And um, a bit a bit cheekily, but I probably have to ask you the, the question about Lydia and, and purple. Seems an obvious question for <laughs> that question. But, um, the, the, you know, there's, the, there's a lot in both Phoebe and Lydia about the theme of, of female leaders and leadership in the church. And, you know, it's there is an extent to which it's not settled in the church today, and it certainly wasn't settled in the first century. So there's a lot of sort of contemporary resonance and, you know, this sort of sense of painting, painting the characters back into the story, especially the female characters. What what has your exploration of Lydia told you about the theme of female leadership? Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Is um. I think, again, one of the things that I've been trying to do in recognising the women in the text is um, to resist the narrative. So the narrative goes, um, you know, I, I have a regular conversations with people that go, um, you know, what's your expertise? I'm a New Testament scholar. Do you have a particular area of expertise? I'm a Pauline scholar. Um, and then Paul, people inevitably say to me, but you do know that Paul isn't positive about women. Um, and, and then I, you have that kind of much more interesting conversation that largely goes, actually, no, I don't know that Paul is not positive about women. Um, let's put it positively. I think Paul was very positive about women in leadership. But what we do is that we pick up certain of key texts. So we, we start with 1 Timothy 2, which talks about women teaching and having authority. You then have a look at 1 Corinthians 14, which talks about women talking in church. And then you move into, on to 1 Corinthians 11 about women prophesying. And from that, people conclude that Paul is negative about women. And one of the things that I've been trying to do both in Phoebe and in Lydia is to say, actually, if you start in a different place, you get a very different picture of Paul. So if you don't start with the notional women that Paul may or may not be talking about in 1 Timothy 2, and instead what you do is you start with the actual women in the Pauline communities, you get a very different picture of Paul. Because if Paul thinks what we say he thinks, then what he ought to have done is to tell Phoebe not to take the letter of Romans from Corinth to Rome. He ought not to have um, responded to Lydia in the way that he did. Um, Euodia and Syntyche, who are mentioned in Philippians, would not have been men mentioned as people who fought um, with him side by side in the gospel. So what you get, therefore, is if you look at both Acts and at the Pauline letters, 
you discover that there were a whole range of women involved in a whole range of activities, which if we take what a lot of people popularly believe about Paul, Paul would not have allowed them to do. Um, Phoebe, and being probably the first exegete of Romans, Priscilla, um, along with her husband Aquila, who was um, somebody who took the gospel all the way around the Mediterranean and together they led um, churches in their houses. Um, Euodia and Syntyche are mentioned and one of the th in Philippians and one of the things that a lot of scholars um, observe is that there's a mention of bishops and deacons right at the start of Philippians 1, which absolutely intrigues us. Paul says um, he greets the, the bishops and deacons who are in Philippi. The most obvious explanation of who Euodia and Syntyche and then a man called Clement um, were, were that they were the bishops that, or, or the deacons, but probably the bishops that Paul mentions back at the beginning of Philippians 1. So again, therefore, you have a whole range of stories about women that don't appear to say what we think they ought to say. So for me, one of the really interesting things is you have a look at the actual women, you reflect on what that meant about how Paul relates to women, and then you go back to the tricky passages and say, well, therefore, what did he mean in that context? But it turns everything on its head. And for me, that's what's really interesting. Paula, there's some quite um, nutty stuff in Philippians, particularly some of the things that Paul has to say about Jewish Christians. And I just, I just wondered, mm -hmm. I mean, what's your, how did you tackle that when, when, when writing this book? Well, it's one of those things that, and again, um, made a really big difference to me imagining. And it was back, I mean, it's back to that whole um, sensory thing that you were talking about earlier, is once you are immersed in a world, all of a sudden certain passages read differently. So there's a bit in Philippians 3 where Paul suddenly turns on a group of Jews, and we're not sure... Um, absolutely confident if they're Jews or Jewish Christians in his mind, but I've imagined in the book that they are Jewish Christians. And he talks about um, this group of people who he says um, you have to be very careful of, he warns against them and says things like their God is their belly. Um, and there's lots of discussion in scholarship about what he meant and who he was talking about. But one of the things that really came out to me very clearly as I was writing this book um, is that um, it must have been a real blow to the people who heard Paul's letter if they were Jewish Christians and if they worked alongside the other communities in Philippi, then actually to hear Paul criticising them in the way that he does would have been a really difficult and quite painful thing. And so what I try to do in the book is to have the slight kind of the, the hurt that comes from suddenly having somebody turn on you and attack you for something that you genuinely believe is the truth is the truth. And so there's something for me about that, again, the sensory imagining emotions and what Paul had in mind when he suddenly turned on this group of Jewish Christians and how they might have heard it and actually then how the other people in Philippi might have responded once they heard it. So I try not to give too much away about what goes on in the book, but I think there's something that I was trying to do about unpicking the difference between Paul having a reaction to a group and actually how true that was in reality about how they reacted and what they did. You are a New Testament scholar and, and that, that definitely underpins how you write. So were there, 
were the particularly difficult decisions that you had to make? I think I think you say in the notes that one of the things you've got to do is to kind of come down on one side or the other of, of, of scholarly arguments, because that inevitably you know, is how scholarship works. So did you find yourself kind of pushed and pulled in different directions about making particular decisions? Yeah, crafting and, and it, it's the way in which I, so I, I really found it a real challenge because I'm the kind of scholar that likes to look at all the different options and then say, well, I don't really think that and I don't really think that. But two or three of them could be the case. And um, and I often like just to leave it and say, well, these two or three might in fact be true. But you can't do that when you're writing a story. When you're writing a story, you actually have to make a decision about whether this is true or whether that is true. So, for example, um, one of the big areas of discussion is why it is um, that the place of prayer in Acts 16 is called a place of prayer and not a synagogue. Um, normally, um, when Paul goes to a new place, he goes to a synagogue and it's called a synagogue. But in Acts 16, Paul goes to seek out people who are wor worshipping according to Judaism and he doesn't call it a synagogue. It's called a place of prayer. And then the question is, why is it called a place of prayer? And until now, I've never really made, forced myself to make a decision about why I think it was called a place of prayer and not called a synagogue. And uh, therefore, in writing this story, I suddenly realised that I had to decide why it was that I thought that. So there's a whole load of those kind of questions that emerge when you're writing a story where you don't have your usual luxury of saying, I don't need to decide that. Actually, when you're writing a story, you do have to decide it. Um, but I think I probably do want to say that I decided it for the sake of the story. Um, but if I were to go back again and think again, I might go in a different direction. Um, it doesn't mean that I genuinely have settled on each one of the things I settled on, but I settled on it for the sake of the story, because otherwise the story would get really complicated if I didn't. I mean, I think that's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? That, that just the suggestion that in the crafting of story that helps the decision-making process that, that firms up particular views. And that's a really interesting way of, uh, particularly in a church context where you're very much driven by doctrine um, and perhaps we sort of experience kind of sits alongside that and there's a bit of a debate about how much that impacts or should shift and enlarge the scope of doctrine, I think. For me, just listening to you there, there's a real, really strong analogy with that crafting of narrative and story that, that helps you into that decision-making process. And that's a really interesting yeah. way of theology. Yeah, no, indeed, that's right. And, and for me, one of the, I think one of the really interesting things is um, as I was telling the stories um, about the people um, in the book, my imagined stories, um, I also became really um, fascinated with our own stories. And there's a bit in the book where I have Lydia telling her story and what she thinks it means um, and um, how she was shamed by everything that happened. And then the, the community in Philippi saying, yes, but that's not how we read your story. How we read your story is that actually you had no choice um, and, and that actually what you did was an honourable thing and not a shaming thing. And what really struck me as I was as as the themes were unfolding and as I was unpacking them, um, that actually this is what happens to us in our everyday lives. And we are, we get really used to telling stories about ourselves, um, which have um, certain endings. You know, so so I'm one of the things that I'm very conscious of is that I can tell a story of my career, which is a story of complete and utter failure. 
And I told it to a friend recently in which I said, look, I failed here and I failed here and I failed here. And she said, but that's not true. Um, actually, um, your story is a different kind of story. And it was a story in which you have been failed at various points in your life. And it's one of those um, conversations that I've had that had a really big impact on me and on my internal world. Suddenly to recognise that the stories that I was telling about myself were only stories I was telling about myself and I could tell a different story. And I think what you're kind of you're reflecting on as well with theology is that actually the stories we tell about ourselves, the stories we tell about other people um, begin to shape reality. Um, but they don't actually need um, to be entirely the reality. You can tell another story that changes your reality entirely. So you can tell a story in which you fail. You can tell a story in which you succeed. You can tell a story in which you have honor. You can tell a story in which you have shame. They're all from the same life and all from the same experience. It's how you put the story together. And when you stop and think about how you tell your own stories, and then how you tell stories about other people, um, then you begin to realise that there are some really important themes. Um, and as you were saying, Helena, about um, doctrine and dogma, is that if you tell stories that lead in one direction, you know, think, for example, about the stories we tell about people who um, were by history called heretics. What if you told the stories in a different way? Um, that would mean that actually um, the story unfolds and looks different. So I think there is something really interesting about stories and how we understand ourselves, stories and how we tell truth, stories and how we relate to other people. And then fundamentally, how stories help us to relate to key doctrines. Um, and I think I've become utterly fascinated about all of those things. Yes, a lot of it is kind of, in a sense, unresolved. And that's that's part of the journey and narrative of faith in some ways. And there's a lot in the book as well about forgiveness and how important that is and how challenging that can be to navigate. Um, what, why did you focus on, on that theme and, and what do you think that we can learn about your reflections on, on that for, for, for our lives now? Because I think the gospel is all about forgiveness. Um, and if people have read Phoebe, they'll remember that it was a really key theme in Phoebe as well. Um, and it reveals to you what I think is the underpinning of um, pretty much the gospel and God's message of love to us is that forgiveness is the most radical teaching um, that comes from the gospels. Um, our forgiveness of ourselves for things that we've done wrong, forgiveness of other people and how tricky it is and how actually simply living a life of forgiveness is, in my view, um, a lot of our calling as Christians to recognise that we can be forgiven for the past, um, that sometimes our stories about ourselves in the past are not completely true and trying to find ways in which we understand where the truth really lies and then to inhabit forgiveness in that way. But then also to recognise that God forgives us but also calls us to forgive other people. You know, that line in the Lord's Prayer, um, which we say day in, day out, um, and causes a tremor in me every time I stop and think about it. Forgive us our sins um, as we forgive others. Um, and that whole dynamic in Christian faith about recognising that we are forgiven, but also that calls us to forgive other people. But the journey of forgiving other people is one of the hardest things we'll be asked to do. It's really easy for us to say, oh, just forgive. 
um, as though there's a switch that you flick and you go, right, forgiven now. And recognizing that forgiveness is a lifelong task. And the deepest hurts um, require a really long journey towards forgiveness. Um, but also we need to be very careful and cautious and thoughtful about how we ask people to forgive. And one of the strands in the story is I imagine um, a young woman, um, and again, I won't give too much away about the story, but the young woman um, has something that needs forgiving um, of a man who treated her badly um, when she was a child. Um, it wasn't abuse, um, but it was um, a, an occasion where that needed forgiveness. But how also she needed protecting by the community. One of the things I think the church often does badly is that it rushes to forgiveness without actually allowing um, things to be faced, truth to be told, um, people to be kept safe um, and not to be placed in unsafe situations again. So forgiveness is a really, really complicated topic. And um, I think um, we could talk about it for days and days and not even get close to its complexities, um, recognising that it's vital, it's part of the Christian gospel, um, that God has forgiven us, but that therefore we have great responsibilities to live up to that, that we do need to forgive other people, but we shouldn't place people in situations of being unsafe, that forgiveness um, is not easy and can't just be done at the flick of a switch. Like I say, we could talk about it for days and days um, in its complexity. And um, it feels to me to be one of the most important things that we will ever do as Christians. And we will probably never quite get it perfect, but living it and inhabiting it is one of the really key things. One of the other things that really struck me about the book was something about the risks and the vulnerabilities of, of having faith um, and the complexity of, yeah. of that in terms of the sort of the tribalism. Um, and in many ways, again, that's another contemporary resonance with, with our life uh, today. Can, can you say a bit more about your reflection on that, 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 those risks and those vulnerabilities and how that then plays out in the Christian life? Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the really interesting things I think about um, living as a Christian in the first century is that it was a very dangerous existence. Um, there is a, a vast amount of discussion about quite how much Christians were persecuted in the early church. And it is possible that they were not persecuted as much as we popularly imagine. But everyday life for a first century Christian was simply very, very hard. Because in order to be a first century Christian, then you had to go against um, various accepted ways of being, various ways of behaving. Um, you, you step out of the honour shame system, as I've already um, talked about. So therefore, um, you, it is risky. And your life um, will never be the same again um, if you are a, a Christian in the first century. And I think for many years, um, because of um, the impact of Christendom and the way in which it's been uh, um, acceptable to be Christian, we've had the luxury of not being faced with that question of the riskiness of Christian faith. Um, it's been something that's been um, socially acceptable and therefore much more straightforward to navigate. I think in the 21st century, we are beginning to become re-immersed in the complex complexity, the riskiness, the vulnerability of being Christian. 
it's nothing like it was in the first century. Um, for those of us who exist um, in the UK and beyond, um, but there are Christians around the world who are in daily, daily in danger of being persecuted. So it's easy for us to say, well, it's not that difficult in the 21st century. Well, it's not that difficult if you live um, a life like I live, um, but there are many people who face persecution. And I think one of the things that we're also beginning to encounter in the 21st century is that Christianity is no longer the norm. Um, Christianity is no longer as socially acceptable as it used to be. And therefore, um, we are beginning to face some of the tricky questions that um, the first century Christians would have known all about, um, about how much you stand up for what you believe in and whether you're prepared to take the consequences of having stood up in that kind of way, what it will mean for you. It's still not as dangerous for most of us um, as it was for first century Christians. But nevertheless, um, it does require um, questioning um, status quo. It requires questioning various ways in which things happen in the world. And therefore, it it, it is a challenging thing. And reflecting on what it was like in the first century, I think, brings it home in a very interesting way. Well, there are lots of lots of other things that, that I could ask you about, Lydia, but um, I do want to ask, what next? Who's, who's <laughs> up for exploration there next, do you think? Do you know, I really don't know. Um, when I was writing Phoebe, um, Lydia almost kind of came and sat down next to me and I thought um, I definitely will have to do Lydia after I finish Phoebe. Um, but I'm not sure about whether there is anyone else who's quite on my mind in that kind of way. As I said right at the start, what made both Phoebe and Lydia perfect is that we know a little bit about them. So we know a couple of strands that anchors them enough in history, but also leaves um, space open for creativity. And I can't quite think of any other women from the New Testament who, or particularly from Paul, which is what I would want to do, um, who quite inhabit that space. The only other one would be Prisca or Priscilla, but she featured quite strongly in Phoebe, so I'm not sure. So I think the answer is, um, I don't know. Um, and I don't know if I will do another one. Um, I very much enjoyed doing both Phoebe and Lydia, um, but I will wait and see, see whether um, something nudges me to think of doing another. I, I think I certainly want to kind of what happens next. <laughs> so <sort of> <laughs> I encourage you to, to think about that. Has this exploration of Lydia just finally impacted on your view of Paul at all? Has that, has that been enhanced or changed or, or challenged in any way? Absolutely. Yes, it has. And both Phoebe and Lydia changed my view of Paul in different ways. Um, and and I think the Paul that I was really reflecting on when I was writing Lydia was a Paul who was in prison. And there's a big question about precisely where he was in prison. But I um, on this on the basis that you in stories, you have to make a decision. I plumped for Rome as the place where he was in prison. And if he is in Rome, there's a real question about um, how he'll survive, um, what will happen to him as a result of the trial, whether this is in fact the end of his life or not. Um, and that, that Paul who is profoundly vulnerable 
and who writes out of that deep vulnerability um, really sat next to me as I was writing it. I could kind of almost feel his pain as I was reading Philippians. Um, and there, so yes, it really has changed um, my view of Paul. Um, I've always been um, a fan of Paul, as you know, as you are yourself. Um, but nevertheless, I've, I, I feel as though I've kind of, I've encountered him more of a, as a person. And just as I've been thinking about people's experiences and how their experiences um, affected how um, they reacted to Paul, I've also been thinking about Paul himself and how his experience affected how he wrote. Um, and I think there's something really interesting about Paul's experience in prison that shapes things. And the thing that really struck me about Philippians is that Paul is in prison like I say, let's say he was in Rome for the sake of argument. Um, and what he's trying to pass on to the Philippians is how you face the world um, when your life is uncertain, when um, you do not know what, what's around the corner, when um, life is really difficult for you. Um, and what's really striking is that as, as he passes on that message, um, the message that kind of bounces around through Philippians, and you just hear it time and time again, is the word joy, rejoice, joy, rejoice. And how Paul has learned in a life of uncertainty and anxiety um, to discover what joy really means. And um, that for me has made a really big difference. Um, I always love Philippians, um, but it is now one of my favorite epistles. Well, Paula, I do hope that everybody enjoys reading Lydia as much as I did. And it's been fascinating and wonderful to, to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you.